More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is Mother's Day, the 12th of May, 2019, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's just after 7 p.m., so it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Heather Forsyth. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and do links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guest and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we're joined by A.J. Filo, who is in his last year of his Ph.D. in mechanical engineering within the School of Mechanical, Industrial, and Manufacturing Engineering within the College of Engineering. Uh, so tell us about uh, your lab, your research. Um, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I work in the Niemeyer Research Group, um, and my research focuses on using supercomputers to simulate uh, combustion, the same kind of combustion that we have in jet engines, at the molecular scale and trying to figure out how the actual movement of matter and molecules down at those really small scales impacts flames uh, on the level that impact how planes fly and propulsion works. So one thing that I think our listeners don't know, and I definitely did not know before speaking to you earlier, was these microscopic kind of interactions that, that you deal with in these you know computer programs, they also have a macroscopic effect. Can you help us understand that a little more? Yeah. So I think the first place to start is to just kind of talk about what a fluid is. So a fluid is any continuous medium, uh, gas or liquid, that if you apply a force through, that force is going to propagate through for some distance. So if you, for example, you know, fan your face, your hand can be quite far away from your face and you still feel the wind hitting your face. Because of that continuous effect, when you get mixing going on, um, that mixing can create a lot of chaos and turbulence, um, which we call turbulence. And turbulence is this interesting phenomenon that can affect things as big as the ocean or as things as small as uh, the molecular structure within flames. And so we talk about this idea of an energy cascade and turbulence where we take these big giant things like on the scale of an ocean. And so imagine, you know, a big swirling pocket of water, okay, in the ocean. That's going to then cascade down and get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until you get down to this microscopic level where eventually those little swirls got to kind of dissipate 
And when they dissipate, that a process happens through thermal and molecular diffusion um, of those molecules reordering themselves and going back into a kind of a more predictable, ordered state. To get a really nice visual representation, uh, Heather put up on, on the blog a really good photo of, um, or actually, AJ, you provided a really good photo. Heather wrote, did a really nice write-up of this uh, idea of diffusion. Um, you can find it on Heather, help me here. Blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Uh, yeah, which photo? I put a lot of photos. There's a lot of photos. There's some I really like, solid like photos from um, your photography series of flames combusting. Um, <laughs> there's a... There's did, I send, a did I send you simulation results? You did. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess the next kind of step from that is so okay so we have this idea of turbulence and we have this idea that turbulence can go away um but in a flame the flame is a source of energy right so i take fuel and i take air or some oxidizer could just be pure oxygen right could could be something else i mix those together i add some heat to get it ignited and once ignition occurs we get a flame okay and that's that's fundamentally just kind of combustion but because combustion is this energy source and it's this interaction of molecules at these small scales, that turbulent cascade that we talked about can actually go back up the other way. And so we're actually now taking that, that combustion is adding energy into the molecules, causing them to go from those small scales back up to the bigger scales. And if you kind of think about it the way a jet engine works, that makes a lot of sense because you've created thrust by combusting little molecules that then cascade back up into big motion of the hot gases coming out of the engine, which can push your plane forward and, you know, keep you in the air and all that cool, fun stuff that we like to, you know, be alive when we're flying. <laughs> I do like to stay in the air. Yeah, it's good. It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I had a question. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this from a very simplistic mindset where when I think about combustion, I think of, you know, a piece of wood burning and it goes directly as CO2 and water is the end product in a bunch of heat. Right. Um, the systems you're working with are jet fuel, but is it as simple as going from molecule A and B to heat and CO2 and water? Uh, th so the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> the long answer is it's really complicated and it's really interesting. So the chemistry side of things is... Uh, I don't, I use it, but I'm not doing a lot of work on that side. So someone else will take a fuel. So say we want to, let's start with something simple, say hydrogen. So if you mix hydrogen and oxygen, you combust them, you get water out. Okay. So H2 plus O2 gives you H2O. Um, if you mix it with air, so you've got nitrogen there, right? So there's 21% oxygen, about 79%. Yeah, that math is right. 79% uh, nitrogen in the air. There's a little bit of other stuff. Um, the nitrogen just kind of goes along for the ride most of the time. Um, but even with that simple reaction in that instant between the combustion happening, like starting and finishing that H2O and actually going through, uh, hundreds of different chemical reactions in that process. So we add that little energy hundreds, spark. Hundreds, hundreds of different chemical reactions. And there's. For hydrogen, which is, again, relatively simple, there's about a dozen different intermediate chemical radicals that form during that process. So the way to think about it is, all right, so say we have a match that lights that. That match has got some energy, and that's kind of like a little scalpel. That's going to come in, and 
say that scalpel's near a little hydrogen molecule, a little oxygen molecule, where they're going to come together and it's going to say, well, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split this at the most efficient plates, and I'm going to take that, maybe that H2, I'm going to make 2H, and I'll have that O2. Well, then maybe an O2 is going to break up. Now I have a couple O2s, I've got a, a couple oxygens, a couple hydrogens floating around. Those can form into things like OH, H2O2, HO2, all these other kind of radicals that we don't, that aren't stable in normal circumstances, but because of the high energy state in a flame, they can be there and transfer energy between them. And then through a complex interaction of all these different radicals and all these different chemical reactions, ultimately we're going to get to a point where we get kind of termination of this process and end up with H2O, water. But going from A to B is actually, you got to go through most of the rest of the alphabet to get there. <laughs> but all of that extra change happens so quickly that most people just don't interact with it. So jet fuel is not just hydrogen. That's right. There's lots and lots and lots of things. So I'm imagining there's a just un I can't even conceptualize the number of reactions that are maybe <laughs> happening in this. That's right. So, so jet fuel, um, really any realistic transportation fuel. So jet fuel, gasoline, diesel, um, avgas, which is what we use for propulsion or, uh, prope propeller powered planes. Um, and then there's different variations of each of those. So there's different flavors of jet fuel. I shouldn't say flavors. Don't, don't drink <laughs> jet fuel. It's bad. Um, but so for example, jet fuel is, is really a, it's a com an aggregate of about a, over a hundred other chemical species. And those are stable chemical species that exist in liquid form at room temperature. So we say jet fuel is a, a large hydrocarbon fuel or a fuel that is nominally liquid at room temperature, as opposed to something like natural gas or methane, which is nominally gas at room temperature. And so if we create a model of that combustion process, we call that a chemical mechanism. And that mechanism um, for something like jet fuel may have in the order of tens of thousands of intermediate chemical species and hundreds of thousands of intermediate chemical reactions. Now, that's accurate and detailed and is really good for certain types of studies. But for the stuff I do, that's way too big. Um, because I'm also interested in all the fluid mechanics that's going on at the same time and how that fluid mechanics and chemistry are coupling to actually produce a realistic flame. And so we use reduced models, reduced chemical mechanisms. Well, we'll take one of those detailed mechanisms um, and apply uh, some kind of criteria that says, okay, we want to minimize error in some of these kind of macro scale things we can calculate. Those are things like the flame speed, which is if you imagine like a tube of fuel and air and you light it on fire, how quickly would a flame propagate across that? It's the flame speed um, or maybe species or temperature profile through a flame when it's burning. And we'll say, okay, I want to make sure in my reduced model error of that is about 5%. And so it'll go through and remove different species, remove different reactions until we can get as many out as possible and still keep within that error. And so the the mechanisms I use um, specifically right now, I'm looking at hydrogen. That's a nine species chemical mechanism. Um, some, uh, uh, what's called N-heptane, which is a 35 species chemical mechanism and toluene, which is a 47 species chemical mechanism. And again, those are the chemicals that occur and exist in that brief instant between when combustion starts and when combustion ends. So the, the crazy thing is we actually know these individual species and the intermediate reactions and kind of what's happening in space and time. 
But for your work, you don't need to know every single little detailed minutia in particular of all these things because, well, let me back up. Why not just include that in your model? Isn't more data always better? So more, uh, no, no, more data is not always better. In fact, um, maybe this is just my field biasing this conversation. Well, so, so I'll run a simulation for example. Okay. And let's, let's stick with hydrogen. Cause that's the one, you know, the most familiar, even just termino terminologically, right. Um, we've all heard the term hydrogen, right. The second thing on the periodic table. Um, but so for my mechanism, which is nine species, I run that through my flame and the flame I'm modeling is relatively small. It's probably fit on the fitted on your pinky finger. Imagine roughly about that size, maybe even a little bit smaller if you've got big hands. <laughs> um, within that, a single data file for my simulation is about 11 gigabytes and I need mm, the order on the order of 60 to 100 data files to get a full statistical sample of that flame. So that is over 100 gigabytes right there. For N-heptane and toluene, I'm looking at terabytes of data. And if I'm doing more, some of the studies that I've done looking at diffusion specifically, we actually need to output the independent diffusion flux vectors, which are much larger because there are three components because vectors have direction, right? And so instead of just having your magnitude, a single scalar value, now you have scalars in the X, Y, and Z component. When I do that, I mean, that triples the size of my data set. <laughs> and so now I'm looking at data files that are on the order of 100 gigabytes each. And so I'm, I mean, mass amounts of data. And it's just, it's difficult to store that. It's difficult to go through it. And so we really want to be selective and, 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 and think about what we're going to look at and what data we need in advance to make sure that we're using our time on these high-performance computing clusters, these supercomputers, really effectively. Because, I mean, they're not cheap to use. Now, we don't directly pay for them. Typically you're awarded a certain amount of time, but that's it. That's the amount of time you got. And so if you use that unnecessarily trying to just sort through data, you know, <laughs> you're kind of out of luck. Yeah. We should uh, probably also mention that the, uh, the work that you do kind of requires not your home computer. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so, so you could run a one D a one dimensional flame simulation on, on a normal computer with, uh, if it had a lot of Ram, I mean, you need, like 1632 gigs of RAM. Yeah, 1632 is probably good for a one-dimensional flame simulation. Um, when you get up to two dimensions, uh, we, we, you know, you're looking more uh, nice, a really nice, like maybe a gaming desktop on the order of 32, 64 gigs of RAM, you know, a 9.9 processor or something bigger. Um, even then, like i9 processors are really not intended for computation. They're more for, you know, daily, daily use. Um, but then when you're talking about these three dimensional simulations, so to give you an idea, like, so imagine this flame, the size of your pinky finger. Okay. In that there's, let's, there's about 1500 grid points along the X direction. Okay. So let's just say this X is the size of your pinky finger. Yeah. So divide your pinky finger into 1500 little slices all the way down the length. Okay. Ouch. Sure. And then <laughs> divide it crosswise a hundred times and then height wise a hundred more times. So you have 100 times 100 times 1500. Okay. Now apply all of the different chemical species you know you have. So for hydrogen, that's nine, and you actually have to do that twice. So it's nine squared. So that's a hundred times one hundred times fifteen hundred times eighty one times the number of chemical reactions for this uh, mechanism. There's on the order of three hundred fifty chemical reactions. So 
add a, you know, multiply by 350. And then you have to multiply that by the amount of time steps that you want to run, right? Because you don't want to just look at it one instant in time. You want to look at it over some, because flames move, right? They change in time. And I mean, just the, the sheer number of equations that you're having to solve. And if you were to store every bit of that data as efficiently as possible, so a single proficient precision floating point integer, or it's an integer, single precision floating point value, you're still looking at the order of several hundred gigabytes of temp of RAM that you need to be able to run these simulations. And so just from <laughs> that perspective, you got to run them on these computing clusters, which are taking basically on a simple level, it's taking a bunch of computers and linking them all together. Um, practically the hardware is a little bit more sophisticated than that. Cause we want to be fast, but <laughs> just making sure that we have enough hardware to even get it to work. How then are, so you have just huge numbers of equations and lots of data. How is it that you were reformatting this to streamline it, make it more efficient? Yeah, so that's actually the bulk of my research. Um, so I'm a mechanical engineer, but I, you could also say I do a lot of applied math. I mean, really pretty fundamentally, m most of my research is applied math. Um, and the and the data management and the and the computation side is a really big challenge. Um, so we're always wanting to make the computation more efficient, faster, uh, and less memory intensive. And for some of the terms that we look at, some of these kind of mathematical descriptions of the physics, the memory is really really big. Um, and that diffusion is one of those terms where memory is is a big part of it. And so I, I actually have worked and developed an algorithm that can parse through these systems. And the best way to think about it is like you go into the DMV, okay? Go to the DMV, takes forever because every time someone gets up to the front, they're missing a form, they don't have their ID, they didn't sign it correctly and they have to get out of line, go and get it, come back, it takes forever. My algorithm tries to say, okay, everybody's got their forms done ahead of time, everybody's standing ready, their ID's out, they walk up to the front, they hand it over, get stamped, they're done, move on keeping the line as efficient as possible so that you don't have to get out of line, so you don't have to look for things elsewhere, just so that you can move through that data as quickly and efficiently as possible to save as much time and energy as you can. Nice. And that kind of, um, I'm gonna say kind of a reductionist framework, which you may not like that term, but that kind of helps to make the computational side of things a lot more effective, uses less time, which in time is money. That's right. So then you can get a lot more of these kind of computations done yeah. So, I mean, we're still, I do what's called direct numerical simulation, um, which is as close to a virtual experiment as you can get. <laughs> um, so we're really like, even then, like we're doing one flame and that one flame will run for on a couple hundred computer cores or a couple thousand computing cores, depending on the size of the flame for about a week at a time. Okay. That's all, which is a lot of time. Um, so imagine like you walk in a room and there's, you know, 2000 MacBooks just lined up running <laughs> constantly. I mean, boy, that would be silly. <laughs> I kind of not want to try that. Um, and so, I mean, we're still, it's still really expensive, but yeah, it's, it's reduced it to a point that we can actually begin to look at the, these kind of first principle fundamental physics of diffusion in a way that we haven't previously been able to do. Cool. So, how is it that you got involved in this research or interested in this research to begin with? That is a good question. So, um, 
I got into this specific part of my research from my master's. So when I was in my master's, I was, I was actually doing experimental combustion work, looking at um, the turbulent flame speeds of large hydrocarbon Bunsen flames. So the turbulent flame speeds of jet, jet fuel flames on a, on a really fancy Bunsen burner. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's photos on, on the blog of the Bunsen burner, at least the top part of it. Um, and for reference, the, the flames in those photos, um, there are two... The blue flame is about uh, 10 centimeters high, and the blue and yellow flame is about a meter high. Ooh, oh, and that's a big flame. It is a big flame. That, we, <laughs> that flame was really just for fun. <laughs> Looks like it. Yeah. Um, uh, but those, so we, would, we use a UV camera, measure the flame speeds of those, uh, and then using some clever visual processing because you can't really, you can't put anything in the flame to measure it. I mean, you could, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't come out. Flames, yeah, the flames are really is, hot. Yeah, anything you tried to measure, like a ruler, would burn the ruler. That's right. Yeah, or, uh, or if you put, yeah, or, thermocouple, pressure gauge. Yeah, flames are hard. Yeah, they're they're not great. Well, and even downstream, <laughs> I mean, like the exhaust gas is hot for a long time. So, say you want to measure the chemical species downstream, you have to figure out a way to chill that down so quickly that you actually freeze the molecular processes because if you cool it too slowly, it's going to terminate in a different way, and you're not going to get a good sample. Mm. Um, and so we use visual process, visual methods to do that because you can, you can look at it and you can pull stuff out from the emissions from that. So in this case, ultraviolet emissions. And in all of that, we found some interesting results that kind of said, well, there's this thing called flame stretch, which, so imagine a flame's like a balloon and you blow it up. Well, if you have a blown up balloon, you can squeeze it, you can shape it, you can make balloons out, balloon animals out of it. I mean, you can't make balloon animals out of flames, but you can shape it kind of in a similar way, and it causes that flame structure to stretch and thin. When that happens, it actually changes the diffusion processes that are going on in the flame and has some weird effects on the, the flame speed on this kind of global level, looking at the flame as a whole. Uh, and experimentally, we just don't have the resources or the ability to look at the flame at that fine a level. And so the, the question is, well, if we want to look at diffusion and figure out what's going on, we need to go and look at this direct numerical simulation. And then, so I'm going, all right, cool. Yeah, we're going to do direct numerical simulation of these flames. We're going to do diffusion. And then the next thing is like, oh, by the way, uh, we don't have a way to do that kind of diffusion really affordably right now. So you got to start by figuring out how to do that. And so then I, <laughs> that got me into the kind of applied math algorithm development side. Cool. So this does make a lot of sense that you're in the applied math kind of track because uh, growing up, you kind of always wanted to do things with your hands. And one of the first examples is you kind of learning and loving magic. Tell us your experience about that. Yeah. So when I was, I think I was probably about seven, my parents got me the Lance Burton magic kit for my birthday. I actually think you can still get it on Amazon. It's a great kit. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Um, and it, it's, I mean, it's, it's a kid's kit. So it's got like the, you know, you got like water and you turn it into dye and then you turn it back into water trick. And like, there's the, you know, cup and ball and it's like little terrible plastic cups and like little cotton balls. Uh, and I, I mean, I went through that whole kit and had a lot of fun with it. And then, um, we had a VHS recording, uh, back before, you know, DVR, when you would record on a VHS of, uh, a couple of the David Copperfield TV specials. And the, my favorite was the one where he disappears into, um, the Bermuda triangle and then comes back and it's this big theatrical thing. And, um, and so I just always really loved magic as I got older and my motor control got better. I got, um, Mark Wilson's, uh, complete course in magic, uh, for my birthday. 
Again, great book. Highly recommend if you ever want to get into magic, especially like cards and more kind of classic vaudevillian magic. Um, and I really just kind of fell in love with it so much so that when I started college at University of Missouri, Columbia, um, I, I actually started, I got a gig as a part-time magician and started doing it professionally. Um, and it was, I, I'm, I honestly, I'm, I'm looking forward to when I graduate and have more free time and can get back into doing that more. Yeah. So you used your experience as a performer still though, as a engineer. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm very much a performer first. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a magician <laughs> with a, a love of science and engineering. Sure. So you didn't start as, as a, as an engineer, you started off with your undergraduate major uh, in Missouri as journalism. That's right. Um, and I, I may still do a lot of journalism, right? So like my, a lot of my YouTube show, um, a lot of the science writing I've done for other YouTube shows like SciShow and Reactions um, with PBS. And then, uh, you know, that's all kind of focused on science communication, science journalism, really trying to find a way to bring the two loves of my life together in a meaningful and like productive uh, con contribution to society. Let's say we have some listeners that want to find your YouTube channel or your website. Where should they go? Yeah, so you can find uh, my YouTube channel at either youtube.com slash science. That's L-I-B-L-A-B science. Uh, or at www.liblabscience.com. Or through the Corvallis Benton County Public Library site. If you search Liblab Science, um, the show was actually started in partnership with them. And their site is still up and running. Uh, and every every episode actually has a little kit that you can do at home. Um, when the sh when we released the episodes, we actually gave away kits for free at the library. Un un or fortunately, I guess we gave all those away. That was very <laughs> successful. So there aren't there aren't any left as far as far as I'm aware. Um, but the directions are uh, available in the video description, so you can still do them at home. So you still kind of do some sense of journalism, but you didn't stay with journalism through through your undergraduate degree. You kind of hopped around a little bit. I did. I, I kind of, I just, the journalism classes didn't, didn't, I got bored. They were not <laughs> for me. Um, and I, let's see, I went to graphic design. I was a theater tech major for a while. Um, I was just a straight up visual arts major for a while. Um, and then I switched to chemistry, which was the big first kind of big switch way um, because I just wanted to try something different. And I really, I did like chemistry a lot, but again, I was kind of bored. I was actually sitting in um, my sophomore thermodynamics of chemistry class. And uh, I was, a, I was a bit of a class clown cause I was bored. And in office hours later, my, my professor was like, why, why are you here? Why are you in my class? Like, and then and he, and he, mean, he meant it well-meaningly like, you know, Stop, stop distracting the other students. I mean, he probably meant you're a very good class clown, but why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, he was a really straightforward guy and, uh, he, he, uh, he was like, well, okay, let's talk about what you actually want to do. And, um, he sat and he listened and I told him about what I was interested in, what I'd done. And he said, I, I think you really would like mechanical engineering. You should give that a shot. About the same time, um, my parents were, we had, I, uh, my family previously lived in Switzerland. They were moving back to the States um, to, we had a farm in Oregon. They're moving back there. Uh, and so I started looking at schools kind of closer to home, uh, you know, because in-state tuition is always nice if you can save some money. Uh, and Oregon State stuck out as a really, uh, you know, has a great engineering program. Uh, the mechanical engineering program at the time, there's only about 100 students. So I applied and got in and kind of, I stuck with it since. 
So you did your master's here as well, which you already described, but uh, what was your first experience knowing that you could do research? And I think for you, your experience was kind of always knew that you could do research. Yeah, I don't. So we talked about this earlier and I have been trying to think about it. I don't know where I figured out that you could do research, but it's just, I've always, from an early age, you know, my parents and I would talk about, you know, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And actually then I wanted to be a vet. Um, so, you know, that was a whole different thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, research was always a thing. And so when I got into undergrad here at OSU, I talked to a couple different faculty about doing undergrad research, did a little bit of that. And then um, just, I, I wanted to do, I wanted to get my PhD. I wanted to do research. And I, I, at the time, like I really didn't have a reason why. I just knew that it was something that I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to, to get into the science and be able to go and be a scientist. And so, you know. Did, did everything I could to make that happen. Yeah. Well, research is really hands-on, right? Like uh, magic, like theater. Yeah. How, do you think that your experience in theater and magic and performing has influenced your teaching? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's also influenced my engineering. I definitely, do, uh, at least I've been told, don't approach engineering problems as an engineer. I, <laughs> I will say things and people will be like, what? And then they'll kind of think about it and be like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, on teaching is definitely more evident. Um, I use the same skills I used as a magician to engage with my audience, to be able to engage with my students. Because if you think about it, when you're in a lecture hall, like, so for example, I'm teaching like, uh, dynamics right now. There's 200 students. That's a lot of students. I've given shows of more than 200 people. It's really not that different. I'm, I mean, presenting something differently, but the emotional connection is still there. You want to be able to engage with your audience. You want to be able to have a rapport with them, have questions back and forth and make sure that you're engaged, you know, providing the experience that they need at that time. The experience is a little different, right? So instead of entertainment, it's education. But I mean, I think the, the safe environment also is there because you're never going to go to a mat. If you're scared at a magic show or intimidated, you're not going to enjoy the magic you're scared or intimidated in class, you're not going to learn anything. And so I think using that and then also using kind of the psychology of misdirection to understand more how my students, more how my students brain works, uh, brains work or, tr or trying to understand that to be able to use communication more effectively to help get things across in a, in a digestible way. The psychology of misdirection, that's something that comes from the from the magic side of things, but can you give an example of how you apply that in the classroom? Yeah. So I think now I, I am not, a, I'm not a psychologist, but I, <laughs> I, I have done a lot of reading. There's actually, uh, if you ever want to like pursue the fringes of your field, I guarantee that there is a magician that has partnered with someone in your field to do huh. like a weird study on it. And there cool. are conferences for this and they're just bizarre and amazing. <laughs> Um, but there was a series of studies a while ago looking at um, what are called saccades or rapid eye movements that are subconscious. We don't control them. And with respect to magicians doing misdirection. So kind of back up. There's there's two types of misdirection. There's overt misdirection, which is, hey, look over there. Uh, and there's covert misdirection, which is very subtle. And you don't you don't you, you say, hey, look exactly where I want you to look. But the magic's still going to happen. And the reason that works is, so say I have a deck of cards in my hand, you're looking down at my hand, those saccades, those rapid eye movements are actually 
continually checking back up at my face, even though you are not aware of that. So you think you're looking at my hand, but really about 70% of the time on the high end, you're looking at my face. And that's because, you know, that's the faces where we demonstrate emotion. That's how you know you're safe, right? If I were to suddenly change my emotion, you want to be aware of that, at least subconsciously, so you can trigger that fight or flight response. And so just understanding where your student is fundamentally looking all the time, if you're writing notes on the board and they're constantly looking at you moving around, that's incredibly distracting. So I tend to use the document cam and have the projection up so they can see my handwriting, but I'm minimizing my movement and my facial change as much as possible. And I'm also facing my audience when I do that. If I'm writing on the whiteboard or the chalkboard, my back's to my audience. And that's very, you know, from a subconscious perspective, that's very scary, right? Um, you don't want to, you don't know what someone's going to do. Um, and there's other smaller things like, you know, gesturing with an, an open palm rather than pointing and all that kind of stuff to just make sure you're being as open uh, and accessible as possible so that you're putting your student in the best possible state, even if they're not even aware of it. All right. It, All right, go ahead. Uh, I was going to do traditions. Ooh, before we do traditions, uh, your next steps. So what you're going to graduate pretty soon and you have something lined up for summer. I do. So I'm... I'm not graduating before I leave, but over the summer, I have a fellowship through the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, um, working at NOVA with WGBH in Boston to make uh, do some science writing and make some science documentaries, and I'm super pumped about it. Cool. Nice. So this will not be the last time that we hear your voice maybe on air or maybe in the credit scene of, uh, of some <laughs> other YouTube channel. Yeah, maybe not. Ho hopefully not. It would really be cool if this uh, turned into a job. Yeah. We're rooting for you. Thank you. Yes. So we have two traditions on inspiration dissemination. Number one, give us a piece of advice that you would have liked to give to yourself or someone else on a similar path to as you have ended up on. Yeah. So I thought a lot about this one. I would say both to my past self and to anybody starting in grad school, take find a way to take nights and weekends. It's hard. We got a lot of work to do, classes and research, but the reality is if you're only ever on campus and you're only ever talking to people in your lab and only ever talking about your research, pretty quickly you run out of things to talk about. And that becomes really draining. And, and when you take those nights and weekends, find some people outside your lab to hang out with because it's good to get a different perspective. It's good to have a wider support group. And it, it really helps a lot. Grad school is a marathon and you got to find as many breaks along the way to keep yourself going. Sure. You know, one option is to do a inspiration dissemination where you can talk yeah. to other yeah. graduate students That's about true. the research. <laughs> At graduate like students us. outside your own field, which is always good. Yes, definitely. Uh, so our second tradition is to ask you for a song. So uh, what song did you choose and why? Yeah, I picked OK Goes, uh, Here It Goes Again. Uh, I flip-flopped on a lot of different songs, and but I think it kind of just... It speaks to my experience in grad school a lot. It's uh, It takes a while. Every term is a bit different, and it kind of feels a little bit repetitive, but in the end, it goes somewhere. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you know, we'll be rooting for you when you go to your next somewhere at Nova in Boston. And until then, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you. And here it is, OK Go with Here It Goes Again.
Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show. The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannum. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be possible. The show was started by Gian Convar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Paget Cobb, Lori Lutz, Heather Forsyth, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steyerwalt. To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. And finally, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination. Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.